we are this summer looking through the book of Luke. So we're going to continue on. We're in week number two of looking at the book of Luke. Now this one, we're going to look at chapter three of Luke. It's one of the gospels in the New Testament. And normally we don't really, I don't really preach this way, but we're actually going to kind of read through most of the chapter. Well, the second half of the chapter is all the genealogy of Jesus. So it lists like a hundred names. And so we're not going to do that today because then I'd start seeing people start, (laughs) did I hear, oh man, I want names. I want those hundred names. But that's actually a pretty interesting list of names. It lists all the, you know, um, from Jesus all the way back through, you know, goes to Adam. So it's basically the genealogy of Jesus. But you read that, and some of the names listed in there are pretty interesting. You've got some pretty shady characters. You've got some people who God did a great redemptive work. You've got some female names listed. And I love that it's intentionally that way because there are some, um, you know, ladies of some bad reputation that all of a sudden God transformed their life, and now they are listed in the, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's a cool, man, that's, that's like, a, I should preach on that. That's awesome. Um, we're going to look at the first half of Luke chapter 3, and we're going to kind of preach through, I'm just going to take it a few verses at a time, and uh, we're going we're gonna to jump right in. I would invite you to follow along if you brought a Bible. And on the inside of your pew, um, there should be a black hardcover Bible. That will be the same translation I'm reading out of. If you would like to follow along, I encourage you to do that. And otherwise, the words will be up on the screen. But let's jump right in. And Luke starts out, and we, we kind of introduced this gospel last week. Luke was an outsider. He was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. He was a Roman. He was a medical doctor who years after Jesus came and died and rose again, decided, I'm going to go and research this for myself. I've heard all these things, but I'm going to go research this for myself so I can make up my own mind. And so you can find great comfort, and I mentioned this last week, especially if you're a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to the Bible, like, why should I believe in the Bible? You've got this letter written by this medical doctor who was a real person, who researched and talked to all the eyewitnesses, and he wrote this down in great detail um, just so that we could have this today and we could say, oh, this is a guy that researched all these things that we've been taught so he could make up his own mind, and I love that we have access to that as part of our scripture today. So we're going to jump in. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. We ready to go? You're all looking very excited. Here we go. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Now, it starts out with a lot of historical details and a lot of names. And so these were names, you know, Hebrew names from thousands of years ago. So now you translate that into an English, kind of an American, Minnesotan, read by a guy of Canadian descent. I'm not going to pronounce any one of these right. But we're going to go through just because I want to illustrate that Luke used a lot of details, a lot of historical details. So verse 1 says this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia, and Trachonitis, here's where it really gets interesting, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Okay, so it's all so that the readers later on could say, oh, these were real people. This is kind of the dates. These are kind of the way it lines up in history. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. We know this as John the Baptist. And he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We're going to stop there for a second. This is John the Baptist. 
We read about him in all the Gospels. John the Baptist, who had this calling on his life to go and to let the people know, hey, the Messiah is coming. The King is coming. Prepare your hearts. Be prepared. And it says that he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And we're going to talk a little bit about that idea of repentance today. So this is the idea of saying sorry, really. And our culture today... We have kind of the lost art of apology, don't we? Do we have a lost art of people actually saying they're sorry? We have a lot of people saying they're sorry, but it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to actually mean it. And that's what the idea of repentance is, to actually mean it. You'll see this in famous people when they get caught for doing something bad. They'll say, well, I'm sorry I was an error of judgment, or, well, I'm sorry if you were offended by this, or I'm sorry if, I'm sorry if. And really what they're saying is, I got caught, so I got to say something to kind of smooth over the PR situation right here. Um, we, have a, we have a hard time, don't we, saying sorry? In our house, we have husband and wife, so that's alone, enough, you know, room for conflict and apology. Um, But now we have four kids, and so between husband and wife, or between parent and child, and especially between kid and kid, the idea of getting kids to understand, okay, you did something that caused harm in some way, so now you need to apologize. And we try to explain this to our kids. And what happens is, and even when it's Christy and I, when there's conflict, sometimes I'll say, well, I'm sorry. I, she'll let me know I did something, and I'll say, I'm sorry. And sometimes she'll, she'll kind of peg me on it right away. She's like, well, I don't think you meant that. <laughs> I don't think you meant that. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm in trouble for. <laughs> so I thought just saying the apology would be good enough. But no, she'll say, I don't think you meant that. And you can tell when somebody apologizes, and they're just giving you the tip, you know, the the you know, typical kind of rote apology. They don't really mean it. But in our house with our kids, especially, and all our kids have such different personalities, and and Betty is not in church with us today, so I can use her as an example. She is one where she does not empathize well. And in fact, if she knows how she can kind of cause harm to other people, that's kind of like a, a lights a fire under her. So it's like, she'll like, oh, I know how I can make my sister mad. And so there was several, several years ago, she must have been three or four, we were trying to teach this idea of causing Betty to relate how it would feel. And we would say, Betty, you did something to Charlie. You, I think she must have taken one of his toys and damaged it or something. And she just didn't really didn't phase her. She's like, yeah, I did it. So what? What gives? And so we were try- I was talking to her, and I was trying to be, in those moments, I try to think to myself, what would a good parent do right now? And I try to do those things. And so I was talking to Betty, and I was having a heartfelt moment. And I said, Betty, you, you damaged something that was important to Charlie. And she's like, and this is, again, she's four years old. Yeah? And I said, well, how would you feel if somebody did that to you? Be fine. I'm like, So right then, her favorite toy was, she was into Dora, the Explorer. See, she had a Dora doll. And here's where the parenting, the good parenting analogy falls apart. Because I, in a a lack of a moment, in those moments, I'm trying to think, okay, what can I do? And and, and when I'm coming up with, with illustrations quickly, those are usually really bad illustrations. So I said, well, Betty, what would you, how would you feel if Charlie did something to your Dora doll? How would you feel? Be fine. I'm like, well, what if, (laughs) and again, this really happened. What if Charlie cut the head off your Dora doll? How would you feel then? Then you could see the light in her eyes. She's like, 
let's do it right now. And she could get like, I'll do that right now. I'll go get the scissors is almost like she was saying. Like my analogy of parenting fell completely apart. She called my bluff. And so then I had to try other ways to get her to be remorseful. And it, it never really took on, I don't think, although she's getting, she's getting better at it. But we have a hard time in conflict with Maybe you can relate in your marriage, with your kids, in our culture of recognizing when you've done something wrong and then truly being apologetic, truly being repentant. And it really comes down to that apology. Did they mean it or are they just saying it? And a legit apology, and Christy will explain it like this to me or to the kids, it's not just enough to say sorry. You have to have this... There has to be an intent to do something different, right? If you're truly sorry for doing something and you're saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, well, there has to be kind of a desire then to do it differently the next time. And that really is what repentance is, that idea of repentance. When it says that John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance, it's that idea of being remorseful for our sin and then having the desire to turn away from that and to turn to God and to do something differently. It's, it's more than just saying, I'm sorry for my sin, but a turning away from sin and a desire to turn towards God. It's humbling yourself before God. And I like the distinction that, John, that Luke writes about here. He talks about he was preaching the baptism of repentance of sin. So people were lining up to get water baptized. And what John was saying, it's not just a ritual thing to go stand in the water and get water baptized. That doesn't make you right with God. That does, that's not a forgiving work right there. What it is is what's going on in your heart, that idea of being repentant. And then from that, the water baptism comes as an outward sign of what has gone on in our heart. And I say that to say that this end of the summer on August 27th, we'll have another water baptism service. And if you would like to be water baptized to show kind of that decision, that decision to follow Jesus, to turn away from your past and to follow him and to give your life to God, we would love you to be a part of our water baptism service. All right, so that was the first few verses of Luke 3. We're moving on. Verse 4, it says this. So they introduce John the Baptist. He's preaching a baptism of repentance. And then in verse 4, it says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. And there's a couple of interesting things I want to highlight from those verses. So first of all, this is Luke is writing about John the Baptist, and he's saying what was written hundreds of years ago in the book of Isaiah applies to John the Baptist. This is what Luke is saying. So he's writing down words from the book of Isaiah, again, which were hundreds of years old at the time. And these words from Isaiah were written to the Israelites when they were in a season of exile. The Babylonians had come in, the enemy had come in, and basically ransacked Israel, destroyed the temple, exiled all the people. So all the Israelites were now living in Babylon throughout the empire as slaves, essentially. And these are when these words in Isaiah were written. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And as it goes on, make straight the path for him so all people will see God's salvation. The prophet is bringing words to the Israelites at that time hundreds of years before John the Baptist was even on the scene, saying, I know you're in exile. I know you're lost. I know it seems hopeless, but the king is coming to deliver you. So how fitting 
that those words in Isaiah are what Luke uses, and all the other gospel writers use those same words to talk about John the Baptist, who's doing the same thing for the Israelites in that current day and age. I know you're lost. I know you're in darkness. I know you're without hope, but our King, our Messiah, is coming. Prepare the way for the King. He is coming to deliver his people. As we saw God do to the Israelites hundreds of years ago, John the Baptist is saying he's going to do it again. He is sending the Messiah, the King, to come and deliver his people. So for the Israelites to hear this, When they were with Isaiah hundreds of years ago, that would have been encouraging. When they were with John the Baptist, that would have been an encouragement. The king is coming. The language used there, I've always read those words, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths for him, every valley shall be filled in. I always thought that was really kind of metaphorical imagery there. But I was reading this week, and that was very common language at the time. When the ruler or the king was coming, say the king was coming to your town or your city, well, you would prepare the way for him. You know, some of those roads then, you know, it wasn't like, oh, sure, we don't mind our king and his entourage on these roads. No, some of them were pretty rough, so we're going to make the roads smooth. We're going to smooth these roads out a bit. It would be like if, you know, the president was coming to town, we would say, okay, well, we got to block off these roads. we got to make this look nice. We, you know, prepare the way. We know the ruler is coming. So roads that are bumpy, we're going to smooth those out. Crooked paths, we're going to straighten those out. We are preparing the way for the king. So for the Israelites, hearing this, hearing these words, whether it was with Isaiah hundreds of years ago or with John the Baptist in that current day, that would have been encouraging because not only are they hearing that the king is coming, the king is coming to deliver you, but this was imminent. This was happening soon. This wasn't just a future pipe dream, like, oh, someday maybe someone will come to save us. No, what the prophet is saying, what John the Baptist is saying is, prepare the roads. Prepare the roads. The king is coming. He is imminent. Prepare your hearts. Get ready. This is not just something that we think may happen down the road in hundreds of years. This is happening soon. Prepare the roads. For some of you here today, this is what you needed to hear today. This is what the word needs to say to you today is you feel in a hopeless situation. Maybe you have been feeling for a long time, oh, God, where are you? Where are you? And the word you need to hear is prepare the roads. Prepare the roads. The king is coming. Your deliverer is coming. God is about to intervene. Be encouraged. So this is what John the Baptist is saying. You are a lost people, Israel. You are a lost people. You are in darkness. You are slaves to sin. You have no future and no hope, just like those Israelites hundreds of years ago in exile. But prepare the way for the king is coming to deliver you out of bondage, out of slavery, into freedom and hope in Jesus Christ. And it's so interesting to me that the last verse in that passage we just read from Isaiah, he says, prepare the way, the king is coming. And then in verse 6, he says, and all people will see God's salvation. Luke is very intentional to include that verse. All people will see God's salvation. Remember last week we talked, Luke is an outsider. Luke is an outsider. So he is very intentional whenever he can to let people know this Messiah isn't just for the insiders, isn't just for the Israelites, it's for all people. 
In fact, when you read this in Matthew chapter 3, throw that next slide. Can you throw that next scripture up? This is the same account from Matthew chapter 3, the same verses from Isaiah that Matthew in his gospel is writing about John the Baptist. This is who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Sounds exactly like Luke, but that's where Matthew stops, right? And what's missing from that verse is that verse that Luke included, and all people will see God's salvation. I love that. Matthew was a Jew. He would have been one who thought, well, clearly this is just for the Israelites. But Luke was one to make sure he included, this is for the outsiders. This is for all people to be saved. Matthew, even John and Mark, the other Gospels, they would have simply assumed this salvation would be for the Israelites because they were God's chosen people. Luke lets everybody know this is for everyone. Everyone is lost in exile, and everyone can be saved. And this is the heart of the Gospel, right? This is why we are here. This is why we are here. Everyone is lost or was lost, but everyone can be saved if they will simply, as John mentioned, have repentance, if they will simply acknowledge their sin, repent, and turn to God. This idea of being humble before God, humble before God. We don't like to humble ourselves, do we? We like to lift ourselves up, to elevate ourselves, and the message of the Scripture is humble yourself before God. In the book of James, it says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James 4, verse 10, it says that. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You do your part of having a repentant heart. You do your part of humbling yourself before him. And what it says is God will do the work of lifting you up. God will do the work of sending you places you'll never dream. But if you will just humble yourself before the Lord and in humility, repent of your sin and turn to God. Well, then the story gets really good. Okay, we've read the first six verses, and this is where the story gets really good. Because these insiders, these Israelites, the Pharisees, the religious people, the, the snobby religious people who thought, well, this is just for us, they start coming to John. And they're like, well, you need to baptize us, too. And John kind of lets them have it. John the Baptist, who's not afraid of picking a fight, he lets them have it. And it says this in verse, verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized, you brood of vipers... Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. There's that word again. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. These are harsh words that John the Baptist, if you're trying to start a, if you're trying to plant a church, or gather a following, or to get people to, you know, listen to your podcast. You don't usually start out with, you're all a bunch of snakes, you know? Y'all are a bunch of snakes. And what he's saying there is, don't puff yourself up because you can say, we're in the lineage of Abraham. Don't puff yourself up because we say, we have Abraham as our father. We're already in. We're already in the inside religious group. Don't puff yourself up. And I love that John the Baptist says, I can... I can get, God can get children of Abraham out of these stones here. That's not really important. Have repentance in your heart. But I love that he's like insulting them. You guys are a bunch of snakes. You brood of vipers. Look at these verses that it says in the message translation of those same verses. Can you throw that next screen up there, Charlie? Here's what it says in the message translation. Now we've got bad blood. You know, we used to be mad love. 
but take a look what you've done, because baby, now we've got bad blood. Actually, that's, sorry, that's not the message translation. That's Taylor Swift. But it really kind of says the same thing. What John is saying, don't assume because you're on the inside, you were born on the inside, that you are in. There has to be a work in your heart. You weren't born into this. Because of your history, because of your lineage, don't put pride in that. Put pride in a heart of repentance. That's the word that that John is saying to those insiders. But the good news is, because you might hear that and think, oh, man, because of my history, I'm not automatically in. But the good news for us as outsiders is because of your past, you're not out either. What John is saying is because of your past, you might have been born into a rotten family lineage. You might say, I don't have Abraham as my spiritual father. I got nothing but hardship in my spiritual lineage. I got nothing but hurt in my past. But what John is saying is all people can be saved. You're not in because of you're born in. You're not in because of your lineage, but you're not out either. For all of us, for everyone, it is if you have a heart of repentance, God invites you in. You make room for him in your life. Amen. Amen. And the only thing, no matter what family you're born into, no matter what you've done, no matter what hurt or regret or failure you have, the only thing is humbling yourself before the Lord and saying, I repent. I need you, and God will lift you up. God will lift you up and give you new life. Verse 10, continuing on. So now all these people have heard John insult them, have heard about the bad blood, have heard him call them snakes, saying, it doesn't matter how you're born in. So then they say in verse 10, what should we do then? The crowd asks. And John answered them in verse 11, anyone who has two shirts should share one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them, which was a very common practice of these tax collectors to not only collect taxes, but to extort other money from the poor people. Even the tax collectors said, what should we do? And he said, don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So we're going to stop there for a second. This is the practical application. Remember when I talked about repentance at the beginning of the message? Repentance involves some sort of a desire to change your course, to not just say sorry and then keep doing it, but to say, I repent, and I'm going to do things differently. This is John the Baptist putting, like, feet to those words. Like, here's how you walk that out. Here's how that looks in your life. And for all of us, it's different. But he's saying, you know what? If you have extra, give some to those who have none. If it's your job to collect taxes from people, do that and honor God as you do that. Don't extort. Don't treat people poorly. If you are in authority over people, Treat the people under your authority well. John is saying this all walks itself out in very practical ways, and it does the same for us. If we have plenty, we should share with those who are in need, right? If we are in authority over people, we should treat those people with respect and not mistreat those. If it is in relationship, in our marriage, in our family, we should have that repentant heart affect how we deal with our wives, how we deal with our husbands, our kids, our co-workers, people in authority over us. It's interesting to me that John 
when they ask, what should we do? What does this look like in our life? It's not really a list of like, well, you have to go to church this many times. You have to memorize this many verses. All these things are good. But it really walks itself out in how we treat other people. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus where so much of it is emphasized in simply how we treat other people. How we treat other people. Are we mistreating them? In our families, in our workplaces, are we taking advantage of people? Are we trying to elevate ourselves? Do we refuse to apologize when we have wronged somebody? This is what we see more and more emphasized with Jesus. It was written to those first century followers. It's written for us today. What does a heart of repentance look like in your life? How does that get walked out in your life? And really, this would be something that maybe you know. This would be something that you could apply to your life. And I believe the Spirit of God could come and even just kind of point something out in your life of saying, this is how this is going to walk itself out in your life. This is what repentance is going to look like in your life. And it might be different in your life than somebody else's. God might say to you, this, is, this area of your life, we're going to get rid of that. Remember last week I talked about how Jesus changes everything? And sometimes it's almost like a interior designer that comes in and just starts messing up your house a little bit, and you think, oh, I don't, want, I don't want you to move that. I don't want to get rid of that old recliner. And after you do, you realize, oh, I should have done that years ago. This is how repentance walks itself out in some of you, saying, we're going to get rid of that. You don't need to walk in that anymore. That baggage, that failure, that regret, that addiction, whatever it is, it might be, um, it might be a chemical thing. It might be an internet thing, what you view online. It might be how you view sexuality in your life, all these things. It might be saying, God saying, repentance is going, how that's going to walk out is we're going to get, we're going to get rid of that. We're going to move on from that. It might be how you are treating people. It might be how you're treating your spouse or your kids, where God would come in and say, we're going we're gonna to move on from that. We're going to now allow the fruit of repentance to reveal itself in how you treat other people. Repentance is key to our faith, right? When you, Scripture is very clear. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you first humble yourself before him and you say, I am a sinner. I have messed up. You humble yourself and you allow him to lift you up into new life. It's so important in our walk of faith. And you know what? It is also important in how we deal with other people, right? It's so important just to have an air of humility, if you're in a family situation, if everyone just has an air of humility around them, boy, there's just so much conflict that just goes away, isn't there? I've experienced that. There's some times where Christy and I are in a conflict, and she will come with just humility to say, you know what, I, I apologize for this, and it just kind of disarms me. And then there's times where I do the same thing. And when we both do that, boy, the conflict just seems to go away a lot quicker than the times when we're both just digging in, ready to pick a fight. Right? And all the married people in here said, yeah, I can relate to that. With our kids, with people that we do life with. Let's be people who are humble. Let's allow God to have that fruit of repentance in our life, to have him come in and change stuff in us. Let's allow humility to just cover us in all our interactions with people, with our family, with our friends and coworkers. God has plans for your life students, young people, old people. God has plans for your life. And foundational to that is going to be humbling ourselves before God. 
confessing when we've messed up. And this is not like repentance and confession is not just a one-time thing. I did that and then I became a Christian, never repenting for anything again. No, it is a daily thing of, God, I, I need your mercy again. I need your strength. I'm going to humble myself before you at the start of this day, every day, and you, I'm going to allow you to lift me up. But God has a plan for your life, students. He does. But it is going to involve staying humble, Staying humble. As James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. God is going to do things in your life that you can't even imagine. But it's going to start with a repentant heart, a humble heart, where we repent and confess the things, where we allow humility just to cover everything we do. This is what John the Baptist is preaching in Luke chapter 3. I'm so grateful that we have this documented the way we do, that we know that this grace is for all people. This new life is for all people if we will humble ourselves before the Lord and allow him to lift us up. Amen. Amen. So the story of John the Baptist, um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to tell the rest of this story because it has quite an ending. Now, if you have ever heard somebody say the following or maybe you have said the following of, God, I have done all the right things and yet everything bad has happened to me. God, where are you? I am a follower of you. I am a servant of yours, and I've done everything right, and yet all these bad things have happened. Where are you? Are you even worth it? Ever been there? I have been there. This is what John the Baptist goes through, and we're going to read the rest of the story in a couple of weeks. It is a great um, example of someone going through the worst, even though they have followed Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if you've ever felt that way, or maybe you hear friends and family, I'll put it out on Facebook when we're going to tell the rest of the John the Baptist story. But let's close today in prayer. Let's bow our heads. And I want to give you an opportunity now just to, just to do what we have been preaching. Just humble yourself before the Lord. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe it's always just been excuse Maybe it's always been kind of excusing yourself, or I didn't really mean it, kind of half-hearted apology. Well, maybe this is a moment where it could be an actual moment of repentance where you say, God, not only am I sorry for my past, but I want that to involve a turning away from that and seeing the new life that you have for me, turning away from my past, turning away from my sin, and allowing you to create new things in my life. I'm going to humble myself before you, and allow you to lift me up into new life, extraordinary things, great, amazing plans that you have for my life.